Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share the story of their journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard new intro music from John Lovanos and Tom Manspeaker, class of 2021. Today, we talk to Kat Grabick, class of 2009, artificial intelligence localization and project manager at Genco. Kat will share with us how her love of language and travel landed here with a career working for an international technology company and allows her in her free time to hike the majestic mountains of Idaho. Joining us today from the class of 2009 is Kat Grabick. Kat, tell everyone what you do. So I am a project manager in charge of running AI data collection, uh, data model training projects. And I know that that can be impacted a lot further, but I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, we, oh, don't worry. We'll, we'll definitely un- unpack that. What did you do once you left WeGo? Uh, once I left WeGo, I actually did an internship at the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, and that started me, and this is something that I definitely recommend for all students, like just look for any scholarship you possibly can because the opportunities to travel, uh, to learn different things from different people, different ways of you know thought, are just you know, immensely valuable. Um, so that I started at the Ayn Rand Institute, and then I went to college, Loyola University Chicago, um, where I studied English and psychology. Uh, English, no surprise, of course. <laughs> I really liked psychology as well. I wanted to explore that. Um, my junior year, though, I traveled abroad to Italy. It's another thing I really recommend is travel while you can in school, while your scholarships cover it. <laughs> and um, I just I fell in love with Italian and with language in general, and I already spoke Polish. And I was looking at my career because, you know, my academic career and it was my, my junior year, I was working on an honors program for English and for psychology. And so it gave me a glimpse into like this was my, what my life would be like if I stayed in academia. And it did seem appeal. I'm not going to lie. It was appealing, but I just wasn't thrilled with my employment prospects. And I was like, OK, what can I do to monetize myself a little better for now? Maybe not the same decision I would have made looking back. But anyway, on <laughs> me down the road that I am now. And I decided, hey, translation. Um, so I decided to look for master's programs in translation. Since I was in Europe at the time, I looked at a couple of European schools and I got in at Swansea University, Wales. And I have that's another thing I recommend. Don't be afraid to go abroad for your degrees because my master's degree there, despite like out of country fees, still half the cost of a terminal master's in the US. Wow. So, and you know, right, yeah. So that's definitely worth it. Um, and so while I was there, it was really great. We learned about uh, language technology as well. So like CAT tools or uh, computer assisted translation tools. Touched on machine translation, that immediately sparked my interest. I maintain to this day that, you know, if I, 
could have, I would have definitely gone on to get like a doctorate in machine translation. But anyway, I decided to get to work right away. At the end of the program, we could either do a thesis or we could get our hands dirty and start an internship. And I interviewed for a few places in Wales, so maybe I could have stayed in Wales, uh, but my grandmother, actually, that's when she became really sick, so I decided to come home, and I started an internship in Chicago, and it was just my foot in the door, a really small company, Metaphrosis, they've grown probably quite a bit, um, and they did a lot of interpreting, so I got to put my degree to use, I was feeling great, um, but you know, at the end of the internship, they didn't really have a use for me, so it's time to look for another job. Um, while I was in school and during that experience, I realized that I can't really have a full-time paycheck as a translator uh, because I just you know, didn't have the experience. Um, so I needed at least a full-time job to support me while I worked on getting experience for translating. And that's why I decided to go towards project management of translations. And that brought me to Texas. <laughs> I got a job with SDL. And I worked there for a couple of years, and I actually had always wanted to move to the mountains. So an, an position opened up in Boise, Idaho. And after I took that, and I, it was actually the greatest thing ever. I would also be say, don't be afraid to change your position, your company, as long as you think you can do it. Because, I mean, it was life-changing to me. I bought a house in Boise. I absolutely love it here. I would not move again. I got to go to Poland again for uh, a month to go be trained. I got to go to Japan for this. So best career move ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I started with translation, uh, again, project management. And there was a shift in the company. They had acquired uh, a smaller company called Gengo that did translations as well as AI projects. And I moved to that division because that was very interesting to me. And I learned a little bit about AI and how they run them. And that was it. Like I was hooked. <laughs> um, so that, that kind of switch. And that was because after a couple of years working in translation, I felt that it, it had become a little bit monotonous and, you know, you have the same kind of problems, the same stressors, the same ways to fix them. Uh, and the way that that industry will grow is actually probably into AI, and people might fight me on this, but I really do feel like machine translation is where it's going. Never totally rid of human translators, of course, because of things like slang, like uh, official documents, but if anywhere, it's going to go into AI, so I just decided to jump in feet first over there. <laughs> Um, and it's actually, I, I do do some machine translation evaluation projects, things like that, and um, that company that I joined was acquired by another company, TELUS, and I've just been there for a few months, so I can't say a whole ton about it yet, <laughs> uh, but it has been, I've definitely gotten to keep working on AI projects and a huge variety of them, and it's just endlessly interesting, so I'll pause there. <laughs> yeah, because uh, you, you, we have to go all the way back to Italy. My goodness, there's so much fun stuff to talk about that, too, but can, just a, a really quick uh, follow-up question before we get back to Italy. So is is your position now such that you can still work remotely from Idaho, even though it's such a, um, a international um, a company? Yeah, so I, I got really lucky. I just got sidled in as a remote worker. They had an office here in Boise, but no one in my division worked there. So they said, yeah, you can work from home. So I've been lucky in working from home for a couple of years. Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to talk about the beauty of Idaho uh, soon oh. enough, but let's, I, I want to go back to um, your time in Italy. For, where were you in Italy? How long did you stay? Uh, were you, is it, were you taking a class there uh, and, and all of that? 
Yes. So Loyola has a campus in Rome, uh, in Italy. So Rome. Good memories. Um, And because they have an official campus there, all of my scholarships, student aid, that transferred right over. So I didn't have to secure any additional funding, really, to go over there. And it was fabulous. I actually, they have the dormitories were an old convent that had been kind of transformed. No air conditioning, though. That was a little brutal <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> um, I was there for a semester. So a couple of months we lived there. Uh, I got a job in the school library and I did some tutoring and I saved up money for going to go on like a final trip to this region called Abruzzo. Uh, and I got to go hiking, and it was just like the pinnacle of my life <laughs> at that point. Um, and there's definitely there's a lot of trips there. Like some people, you know, if they have uh, their parents are more financially, you know, able, they could definitely fund them to go on more trips. Um, I did go on a couple of ones. I went on a pilgrimage to Assisi, which I mean, it's so hard to like kind of summarize it in a few words. But we did, you know, Assisi. We did uh, Umbria. Uh, other places I just remember it's just a blur of delicious food delicious like wonderful countryside and just so much history and the culture it was oh it was amazing (laughs) it was special it really is I mean the uh I've spent only uh, maybe a week or so uh in Florence in Tuscany and uh yeah that's that's a place where you could just see yourself never leaving you know it's just amazing like you said (laughs) the architecture the food the wine everything is just incredible what class did you take while you were there ah so i took i kept taking italian i took opera actually so i learned how to sing opera from an opera singer um there's something else my gosh history of course you can't be in rome and not take a history class because oh my gosh um, and a writing class, actually. So that was really so nice. We'd you, go to different locations. So you, would you say that you are – so, okay, you speak English, obviously. You speak fluent <laughs> Polish. Are mm-hmm. How many other languages do you have a level of um, command for? So this is, this is a hard question for me because – if you don't use use it, you lose it for sure. And so Italian, I got to a pretty high level by the end of my college career of reading and speaking. And I can still understand people, but it's like I feel inhibited in responding to them in Italian just because, you know, like I feel like I haven't practiced in forever. I'm going to sound like an idiot. And this is a pretty common phenomenon uh, among my colleagues, too. Um, so I'll say I can understand Italian. I took some German um, when I was getting my master's, so I know German um but that's you know took a tiny bit of Japanese less Japanese than I took German (laughs) before I went to Tokyo for work um so just a tiny bit there and if I had more time I would definitely go back and learn more languages and learn more about Italian it's definitely my favorite I probably should be ashamed to say I have a favorite (laughs) it's cool that you were able to get to that level of um where you, of of near mastery and I, no doubt you could fall back into it. So, all right. So you, when did you start then kind of coming to the conclusion, like, I'm not ready to go home yet. I think I'm going to look to maybe continue my degree overseas. Um, how, how did you come to go to Swansea? Like, as opposed to uh, maybe some other schools, like why did you select um, that particular uh, school? So it, for me, it was also the degree. Um, there were some schools in the U.S., uh, more in the southern regions, if I'm remembering correctly, that at that time had a language degree. So I could get a degree in Spanish and Italian. Um, 
But the Swansea University, that program offered the, you know, uh, language translation plus language technology. And so I thought that was really special. Um, so that's why I had applied there. And it was actually what cinched the decision for me was they were giving out, um, you could win a scholarship for, it was like one of four places for a scholarship for international students. And when I got that, it was, you know, quite a, quite a discount. So I was like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) No doubt. I mean, so, uh, what was it like living then? Uh, so how long were you then living in Wales? I was there for about a year. It was an accelerated master's program. So we just, we took a lot of classes and, you know, very few breaks. Um, And it was, it was definitely different. Um, We, I'd flown into London, took the bus ride up there. It's a couple hour bus ride. And it was just, the, the countryside is gorgeous and it was wonderful because the campus is actually sandwiched this between like a bay. So there's like a beach and then uh, a park. So there's a forest botanical garden. So every day after class, I could walk by the forest. I could walk along the beach, pick some sea glass. It was pretty cool. Oh, boy, you, you really painted a picture <laughs> there for me. I'm, I think I, I want to go to Swansea now. Wow. <laughs> we, that, so, uh, so it was accelerated uh, program. Um, I want to kind of touch on something that you said uh, earlier about the program. What is exactly machine translation? You said that was something that really piqued your interest while you're there. I wonder if you could maybe define that for us. Sure. So machine translation, I think most people will recognize something like if I say Google Translate or Bing Translate, those are probably the two most popular ones uh, for everyday people. But it's any it's an engine where you type in uh, something in one language and you select the language you want to translate it into and it pops out in theory correctly and it has I'll say it has improved like magnificently <laughs> within the past couple of years that's how AI is though it's exponential in terms of improvements so it's pretty cool what was your work with it that really kind of piqued your interest I think well so Maybe I painted it a little differently, but we just we just kind of touched on machine translation in classes. We were talking about the different ah. ways that models could be trained. And my brain just like really loves to go into like theories like that and like project designs and like how to get the best input possible and just like the the marriage of technology. Cause I was never a hard science gal. I was always liberal arts all the way. But this seemed like a marriage, like a bridge for me between, you know, arts and hard science so that's the first place where I was like wow that could be super super cool for me now you know you've lived abroad quite some for you were in Italy for a while then you were a year uh, in Wales was there any kind of culture shock for you what were some of the things that were um, that you needed a little bit more adjustment or were you pretty quick to be able to kind of fall in I think everything required a period of adjustment. And I just like, I would like to like stand back and be an observer. But when you're such a touristy place, such as Rome, I mean, it's a little easier, I would say, in touristy places because they make accommodations for you. They forgive you for doing silly things. Um, uh, But in Wales, when I was there, it was definitely different. There weren't a lot of other American students. We had a lot of students from China, actually, um, I think that was probably the biggest group other than actual Welsh students as well there as well. Um, and it was, it was very different for me because it was also a small town. Um, and it was, 
how do I put this? <laughs> I don't want to sound bad, but there's definitely a very much more of a partying atmosphere there than I found when I was even in the U.S. for college. Wow. <laughs> I'm talking like drinking songs well into the night. And I was just like, when do these people study? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was kind of cool. But yeah, it was it was still pretty international, too. So on the campus, they were forgiving and kind of explaining things to you. But going out and exploring around town was it was really cool. I did feel a little bit more isolated there, of course, because when I was in, well, when in Italy, I had a couple of classmates that I knew. And I was, I lived in Poland for a couple of months too. And of course, I had family there. But in Swansea, I was you know, absolutely knew no one. Um, and by the end, you have friends, of course. But it was, I guess it was a little bit, the isolation was a little bit intimidating at first. Refresh my memory then. So you, you leave Swansea and you come back to Chicago, but then you, you did take that job in, in Texas. That's all. That's probably another culture shock to kind of come from the Midwest <laughs> to go to, to Texas, I would imagine. Um, what was that company it like was, that you went to there? Uh, it was, <laughs> I don't want to say too much. I did end up leaving the company. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a good teaching experience and um, it was an in-office position, which probably led to it. Um, and Texas, I think, was hard for me just because I had like one extracurricular activity and I, I would go to the shelter to volunteer um, with dogs. And that's where I got my dog, actually. Uh, oh. And so I didn't really know a ton of other people outside of there. And it just wasn't I wasn't feeling as challenged mentally uh, as I had been in university. So I felt a little bit stagnant, but also stressed still because of, you know, the, the demands of a, of a nine to five or an eight to five in the office. Um, so that was, that was a little bit, I think that was probably the most culture shock for me was like being in, in that kind of office situation every day. So that's, I guess I'm so appreciative of being able to work from home all the time now. When was the moment where you're like, okay, I got, I have to try something else and and see what else uh, is out there. What was that search like? Oh, for me, it was, um, and this is something that I think like a lot of people, especially people who don't have a ton of experience, like don't, don't let your employers take advantage of you. And I'm not saying that that company purposely took advantage of me, but I kind of let it happen. I was new. I stayed really late hours, uh, more than my other coworkers, it seemed. I was working really hard. Um, and it just didn't seem like the processes were there to support me. And after my manager left, um, and she had always been, she was great to me, but after she left and, um, the next manager didn't, didn't support me in quite the same way, I decided, well, that's enough of that. Uh, and I decided to apply in other places and that's, that's when I found the Boise position. And I'd been looking actually in Colorado, uh, because there's quite a few language companies that are out there, but the cost of living there is, of course, pretty high. Um, so Boise was, when I moved here, the cost of living was quite a bit less, but now it's, of course, skyrocketed, like so many things. Yeah. When you find the new job in, in Boise, you said that there was also some travel opportunities that with this job, I believe you said that you were able to go to Japan and maybe some other places. I was wondering if you can maybe talk about your, your trip to Japan and what was that, what was that experience like? 
Oh my gosh. So that was that was when I joined the AI division, actually. Um, I went to Tokyo in Japan of 2020, so just before COVID. Um, like we just started to hear rumblings of it when I was there. Um, and this company, so the company that had been acquired had headquarters in Tokyo. So I went there because all of the people were there. And they were still largely um, in Japan. It's pretty much you come to the office where come home isn't as uh, popular from what I understand. And again, I was there for a month, so <laughs> I'm not going to profess to be an expert by any means. Um, but it was, it was really, really something. The people were very friendly to me. And again, it's kind of a touristy area. And I think what blew me away is just the, the level of quality that there was in literally everything. Like for example, fruit was quite expensive. So they would get it into the office like once a week for everyone to try some fruit because otherwise it's kind of out of the budget. And like the strawberry that I tasted was like the best strawberry I had ever (laughs) had in my life. And it's just this kind of dedication to like, if you're, you know, don't produce poor quality things. Um, And of course, like there it was definitely the most crowded city that I'd ever lived. Like, you know, I've been to Chicago, of course, but Tokyo, a whole different level. And there were just so many nooks and crannies where you could discover whole different things. I was really sad. (laughs) I didn't know Japanese enough to read all of the signs, but actually machine translation helped because there's there's a new feature in the Google app where you can use your phone, point it at a picture, and it'll translate the words live. So that was pretty cool. It has to be so that must do something to just uh, diminish the anxiety of traveling in countries where even the script is different, where you you at least now know directions and streets uh, and and all of that. Mm -hmm. How long again were you in, in Japan? So I was there for, well, okay, so I I was technically there for three weeks. I did go for one week to the Philippines, to Manila. Um, we had an office there, and that was where the night shift worked, and that's who I would be working with because their night shift is U.S. day shift, and that was also so amazing, but I got sick as a dog when I was there, oh. uh, so I didn't get to enjoy it too much, and there was also a volcanic eruption, and so we couldn't get to go like hiking or anything like that. So I'm determined to, you know, after this whole COVID thing settles down to go back and finally go on a hike and enjoy some beaches. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so sorry. Yeah. I want to go back to then what your your actual, you know, your day job is and, and all that. Tell me more about like the project management of an AI um, system that you're in management uh, that you have, uh, maybe kind of walk us through like what what's the product of artificial intelligence that your company specializes in? Like, so if I were a new client and you were kind of tell me what you what you do specifically, what what would that be? Sure. So what we do is we collect the data, the human data, which is supposed to be considered kind of the gold standard that is used to train the models that then go on and do things like uh, facial recognition, like uh, speech to text, things like that. So in order for models like that to work. So there's the data scientists who have like the really cool job that I wish I could do, um, who actually design the models and run them. Um, We're responsible for getting the data that trains them. And the amount of data you need to get a good model to cover a lot of variety is just massive. Um, And so it's just impractical for the companies that have the data scientists to also kind of collect this data themselves. So they turn to companies uh, like TELUS and we work with a 
cloud of freelancers, which, you know, side note to anyone listening, if you need a side hustle, that's a great easy way to make some money. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you could do anything from image annotation, uh, which is you might be drawing a box around an image, like let's say uh, of people in the street crossing, you draw a box around everyone who has a face mask, like just around the face mask or text annotation, where you could be labeling parts of speech. Um, you could be doing data collection, which is you'll be speaking and just submitting, you know, audio recordings of your voice. Uh, there's just such a wide variety and I could go on, but I can't go on too much because a lot of it is confidential, but it's so, so very cool. Can you describe artificial intelligence as it engages the material that your company finds and, and, and goes over What How does the AI uh, behave? So, and like this, this varies wildly. That's the part where it's like, it's proprietary for a lot of companies. Um, Uh But for example, so if it's um, to kind of make it, I guess, more grounded for most people, if you think about like when you're talking to Alexa or Siri, they need to have, make sure that, that, uh, that device can understand what you're saying. Um, so when you're submitting samples, you need to make sure you cover like a variety of accents, of demographics, of volume, um, all the kind of situations where it might be applied. You kind of need to make. And now, now I'm feeling like I really didn't answer your question at all. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm going off on a different tangent. No, I love it. Keep going. Okay. So you kind of need to account for all these situations. Um, and because of the variety, that's why you need like a massive amount of data, which is why um, I think I hear a lot of people are worried that like machines will take over their jobs. We'll always have a job training the machines, I feel, <laughs> from what I can see. Um, so, you know, might as well get it on the ground floor gig with annotating things or submitting data there. Um, so, yeah, so uh, that's the, the variety and just the massive amount of items. So if you think about machine translation um, before this kind of approach existed, I'll just go back to machine translation specifically, there was what was called rules-based machine translation. And that was where it would take so much engineering effort to kind of ingrain all of the rules of a language into a model and see if it would spit back out the right thing. And that was moderately successful. Like the more time you put into it, of course, the better it was. Um, and then certain search engines started using corpus-based, uh, which was you have, for example, in the EU, they translate all of their documents into all of the languages that the, the you know that EU has member countries of. And that's done by professional human translators. So now you have a corpus of really accurate text. And if you put that into your model, you're going to have really accurate translations for those languages for that kind of material. Um, so since, you know, if it's EU based, like that's where their corpus started, then, you know, anything political kind of like legalese <laughs> might be really well translated. Um, I don't think slang will ever be appropriately machine translated just because it changes so often by the time it catches on or we get enough data i'm sure it'll change so slang will always kind of be counterculture there (laughs) with machine translation um yeah it's interesting that you you say that because i was wondering if the you know you had mentioned earlier that there's been such kind of an exponential growth within Mm -hmm. the power uh, of AI, how much have you seen, I mean, that has grown already since you've been in, in the industry? I've seen, well, just so speaking in terms of like machine translation specifically, I like when I would started with my master's, we were told, you know, like 
it's it can be a tool that you can use for certain projects, but it's probably not going to be that great to like, oh my gosh, these machine translations are getting to be really good. And honestly, every time you use them, you're kind of contributing because you can say, yes, this translation was good. So you're kind of feeding, feeding the beast and the beast is, you know, becoming better for you based on your input. Um, and so the more, the more, just the more data, like it'll, it'll just get better and better and better. And there's this threshold and I really wish, like, I need, I would love to go back and get a degree, like, specifically in AI, but there's, I'm sure there's a term for it. There's this threshold that hits where if you have the right variety and the right amount of data where, boom, the model just seems like it's almost perfect and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I just, it's, it's interesting that you said that, you know, it does, though, seem that the one potential blindside uh, for this will always be something like slang or even the intentionality of a poet, you know, something like that, that's going to be right. the one part, right. but who knows, maybe that it will be able to kind of capture some of those, uh, some of those, like, those uh, qualities of it. Did, do you find that, that the, the way in which language is kind of used within the models of AI, does it seem so very mathematical in the way that there's a logic to it? So I'll say that now it's kind of more statistics based. So in that way, it is a little bit mathematical. Um, it's uh, Most of the machine models now are statistic and that whatever is used the most, whatever comes up the most, that's what's right. That's what they assume is correct. Um, so in that way, I guess the populace wins and that's how you know we add words to the dictionary, I guess, every time. But we don't see... I think I think in general, actually, I would say most of it is like the the majority wins in AI. So if this is what you see the most of, this is what has to be correct, um, and that's why you need so many cases to kind of train it right to to accommodate the different variances you might have. Um, I think way back when there might have been a much more mathematical influence in machine translation when they were trying to do rules based, and that hasn't. I'm sure they've incorporated some of it, but it's just, I feel like it's probably so much easier to write a model that says, okay, look at this corpus and the sentence that occurs the most often for this source sentence is the one that's going to be the correct one. Um, if that makes sense at all. <laughs> Let's get to the, the other fun part, which is you live in Idaho, which is such a, it's, it's such a beautiful state and, and all that. How, how do you, like, what are some of the fun things that you're able to do um, being so close to really one of the most beautiful parts of the country? Oh, really? It is. Um, I am under an hour away from desert, from river, from canyon, from mountain. Uh, we go hiking a lot. We go camping. This year, the ticks are pretty nasty, though. <laughs> so not as much of that. But it's the opportunities. We're really close to, to a really great observatory. Um, a lot of the good observatories are in the desert. And we have one out here called Bruno Dunes. Um, and they'll do some really, really cool presentations. So like, the night sky is just gorgeous out here. Unlike anything I ever saw, you know, in, in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's, that's wonderful. And just like the first year I was here, I think every single weekend I was out hiking or camping or doing something. And I still haven't seen like even a tiny bit of it. There's just so much to see out here and adventure. And Idaho's great because we have so much public land. Um, where like in Texas, there's a ton of private land. So there's not so much you can explore and do, but Idaho, like I think there, maybe most of it, I might be wrong, but there's a good chunk of public land where it's just, you know, for us to use, to explore. Um, and so I think it's, it's really great. There's a different emphasis on life values here that I found 
Whereas like when I was in Dallas, the priorities seemed to be who has the nicest car, who has the newest purse, who watches the newest programs, keeps up with sports. In Idaho, it's like, oh, hey, have you hiked this trail yet? Or, hey, have you been out here yet? They've got you know, like really good fish out here. Or, like the, the sunsets out here are amazing. So it's this really big focus on outdoor living that is it's absolutely refreshing. It just like it helps. It really grounds me. I really, really enjoy it. <laughs> I might have to cut out that last part so more people don't come out to Idaho and ruin your secrets. So. <laughs> secrets out. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, that's too good. So uh, so wh- where do you see yourself maybe in five, 10 years? Uh, like, do you think you'll go back and, and, and do more advanced um, work in language and uh, machine translation AI? I, that's definitely a possibility for me in general. I would love to, like, if I could, like, go back and just learn more about AI. And actually, I found throughout working in my, like, just my day-to-day job, I'm responsible for training a lot of our new workers, and I really enjoy that. I enjoy teaching. Uh, so uh-huh. I might I might try to, like, kind of marry those two and, like, you know, maybe uh, be a training manager or something like that for my company. Uh, but, yeah, those are just some aspirations to shoot for. I think it's really important to like do something that you love and not just something for the paycheck, which it's, it can get old. <laughs> I will say, <laughs> but this cat, you've been so generous with your time tonight. I've just like, I, I'm, I can't wait to edit this so I can kind of really make my mind get, get, go around some of the concepts about AI and all the cool things that you said. But I was wondering if you could, Share with current Wildcats some tips for success that you have learned along the way. Yeah, and I think probably one of them is definitely follow your passion. Um, My passion has kind of led me on a couple of pivots, (laughs) but eventually like you'll get there and don't. So follow your passion and don't be afraid to change to a point. I will say it's way better to realize like, hey, I don't want to be a doctor before you've spent, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and a lot of your life (laughs) in a doctorate or, you know, in a PhD program. Um, And just also see kind of plan for the future and what you want to do just because like I know I work in AI and it's really fast growing so just think about how technology will affect your future and your career and maybe try to get ahead maybe try to get you know an additional degree in something that might be relevant um uh, to you know to you know well that might be thinking too far ahead but you know to your career in the future um so that you can adapt with the times really quickly ah that was great Well, Kat, thank you so much, and I've learned a ton, and best of luck. Thank you, and it was so great to catch up with you. Thanks for listening. You can follow We Go Places on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox, that's We Go, V-O-X, or search on Facebook for We Go Places Podcast. (laughs) 